I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Smart Peace, a mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. Peaceful change is political. It involves negotiation and agreement. Supporting peaceful change processes means using networks strategically to engage people in dialogue. People with power and people without it, and people who want change and people who resist it. As part of the Smart Peace Consortium, Chatham House has been working in recent years to develop new approaches to peace building in three different countries, Central African Republic, Myanmar and Nigeria, which build upon a range of different techniques and expertise in terms of conflict analysis, community dialogue, elite mediation, evaluation and behavioural science. The consortium includes organisations from across the world, including the Asia Foundation, the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, Conciliation Resources, the Behavioural Insights Team at ETH Zurich, and International Crisis Group alongside Chatham House. In this mini-series, I'll be speaking to some of the people involved in the Smart Peace project, which has now come to an end, to find out about the lessons that they learnt from their activities in the three countries, and also to find out a bit more about the drivers of conflict in those regions that we're discussing. This second episode in the series focuses on the situation in northern Nigeria. I'm joined by Sadgi Rajani from the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, Professor Abubakar Mongono from Maiduguri University in northern Nigeria, and Vansom Fouché from the International Crisis Group, to discuss a conflict which has really grabbed headlines in the UK at various times in the last five to ten years. Obviously, many of us will have heard of the terrorist group Boko Haram and their uh, malign activities, often against civilian communities, including the kidnapping of schoolgirls, which notoriously has not been resolved to this day fully. But in recent years, we've seen the situation on the ground in Nigeria grow even more complex. We've seen the entry of new armed groups into these struggles, which have been exacerbated, of course, by issues such as uh, climate change, drought, and the severe effects that conflict has had on, on the economy in the region. But it's also been supplemented by local level peace building initiatives, processes that while not exhaustive, are at least trying to get people to sit around the table and and talk about their differences. And we've also seen some very interesting developments in terms of the reintegration of former fighters back into local communities. Smart Peace has been involved in some of these at various times over the past few years. And so I was joined by Sadgi, Professor Mongano and Vincent to get into the lessons that they learnt from their involvement there and to talk more about how the situation in Nigeria is developing and the impact that it's had on civilians. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so it's great to be joined by such distinguished guests to talk about this topic. And I think it's very interesting because the situation in in northern Nigeria, uh, the security context is is so complicated and and yet here in the United Kingdom it's it's probably so often reduced to Boko Haram scary terrorist group and that's the media narrative. So <laughs> I think maybe to begin before we get into the work that Smart Peace has been doing 
Vincent, I wonder if I could turn to you first and, and maybe you could just give us an overview of the security situation in, in northeast Nigeria and maybe some of the recent history and who the key actors really are at the moment. The insurgency began in uh, 2009 and it has been uh, going on ever since. Uh, there have been a number of, of splits. Uh, there has been a, a major turn in, in 2015 when Abu Bakr Shekau, the, the leader of the movement, uh, pledged allegiance to, um, to the Islamic State Caliph, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi at the time. And the year after that, there was, there was a, a rift within the movement itself, and people who were um, opposed to Shekau uh, basically took over um, the, the IS uh, allegiance. Um, and, and so from then on, until very recently, uh, there were those two different groups, the, the Shekau groups uh, called Jamaat al-Sunnah, and, and the, the ISWAP group, uh, the dissenters, who had been able to keep the recognition of, uh, of the Islamic State. And this distinction is important because the two groups uh, really have behaved very, very differently, with the Shekau group uh, maintaining a very sectarian, a very, very violent uh, attitude, attacking even Muslim civilians, you know, extremely brutally, um, whilst the, the other group, the ISWAP group, has been trying to reach out again to, uh, to Muslim civilians to sort of recreate um, an economy um, and stabilize portions of the territory that, that it controlled. So we, we, the distinction matters because of this. And so this distinction actually um, took a new turn very recently because in May 2021, just, just a few months back, um, Shekau uh, killed himself, uh, blew himself up uh, with a suicide jacket. Uh, as ISWAP was pushing in against the, the stronghold. So the situation now is that ISWAP really has taken the lead. They, are, they really are in the lead of, of jihad today. There are some groups that were um, associated with Shekau that apparently are still fighting on and trying to, to maintain their, their autonomy. But it, it, it really looks like ISWAP very recently took over the bulk of jihad in Bono State. Thanks so much. Um, I wonder as well, maybe you could tell us a bit more about the the aims of these groups. I mean, obviously you said ISWAP is now the, the sort of dominant actor. Is there sort of ends to carve out territory that they can control in that part of Nigeria? Or do they have designs on expanding further? Well, I mean, the, the for, for both factions and for Boko Haram initially, it was always about an understanding that, that the political Islam that's uh, implementing a very hardcore Islamic version, you know, was the best hope to organize um, and, and to live um, decent and, and non-corrupt lives. And th this comes from something that is actually quite Nigerian in a way. And, and, and in a sense, the special power that Boko Haram has been able to build in Nigeria has to do with a, with a very Nigerian history. Yes, you know, the Boko Haram has, has a presence and an activity. The, the factions have had a presence and activity in Cameroon, Niger, and Chad in, in the border areas. But I mean, to me, this, this really is, this really talks about traits uh, of Nigerian history. And, and there are essentially three, I think, that we want to mention here. The first one is it's a country which has a very strong religious divide, fairly even portion of, of Muslims and Christians, and, and the number of Nigerians perceive politics and perceive statehood and governance, you know, according to the religious lines. And so 
that there is a long-standing frustration, you know, the sense that, okay, my community is not defended, it's not represented. And so for a lot of uh, disgruntled, for a number of disgruntled Muslims in northern Nigeria, yeah. having, having um, you know, very political Islam seemed like a good, a good solution. Another dimension, which is, again, fairly specific to Nigeria, is the degree of, of wealth and the degree of poverty. Nigeria is an oil-producing country, and so there is, there is massive, massive wealth. But it's also an extremely poor country in a number of areas. And, and you know, in, in rural Borno, people do not have electricity. Uh, access to education and health is extremely difficult. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of special feature, this combination of extreme wealth and, and you know, spectacular poverty is clearly part of the mix that uh, created a space for, for Boko Haram. And this is related, of course, to the sense that power is corrupt, that the state is not doing its part. And so the, the analysis, and that is the, where the phrase Boko Haram came from, you know, the sense that modern education is a bad thing. Actually, it's not modern education per se. It's the fact that modern education is, is what the state is built on, the modern Nigerian state. And so it was a sort of cultural critique of the immorality of the state associated to, to, to the kind of un-Islamic training that it's its civil servants have been getting. And the third aspect is, is also the impunity, the long history of violence by the security forces. It's a country that has had a, a military dictatorship, a long experience of military dictatorship, and, and a, a degree of autonomy, persistent autonomy uh, by the security forces, and a lack of accountability. Uh, and I think that also has been part of, of the story. And, and this mix together help uh, the, a number of, of religious entrepreneurs uh, build uh, Boko Haram as a, as a very powerful social movement um, in the in the early 2000s. Thanks so much. Um, Saki Rajani, you'd like to come in. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I was just thinking and you know, we've had so much opportunity of working together. And as Banso said, it has been quite ironic in a lot of ways when we talk about a military autonomy or when we talk about the number of actors in the conflict even as us, when we started working on this particular program in Nigeria, the conflict context, uh, we only want dealt with Boko Haram, but within the three, four years we've dealt with, we've ourselves realized the ISWAP and JOS fraction, what are the differences, both in terms of ideological differences, but also in terms of their operations and how their outlook is towards the community members. And I feel that in itself is such an important part of the conflict because there is one fraction that is more receptive to what the community thinks and wants and the other, which is a friend of the community, friendlier to the community in some way. So I think that's also such an important thing uh, to make a note of, especially in the context of uh, the Boko Haram crisis in Nigeria. It is so rapidly developing. Every day is a new day and every day is a new uh, security challenge. And in it, within itself, there is often not much to analyze whether or not these groups are together or they are completely independent. Uh, at some levels, they work together. On some levels, they are completely working individually, both in terms of operations and in terms of ideological differences. So it is quite complex, is what I wanted to add. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's an important point. I'd like to 
think maybe now a bit more about sort of the impact that this has had on, on people that live in the region. And I'd like to bring in Professor Mongano, if I could, just to ask you a bit more about how communities uh, in Borno State have been affected by this conflict. Um, obviously, you're, you're based at, at the University in Maiduguri, which is in the region, and you must have come into contact with a lot of a lot of these civilian communities. So maybe you could tell us a bit about you know, what life has been like and, and the implications for civilians. Uh, thank you very much, Benjamin. Before I go into that, uh, let me quickly add a few things to what Vincent and uh, Sadgi have said. I would like to say that looking at the context of Boko Haram, uh, a lot of things have changed from 2014-15 to present. Uh, if we can recall, in 2015, that's the peak of the, of, of the crisis in terms of territorial control. Uh, Boko Haram was able to control a large uh, swath of, of, of land uh, in Borno, uh, Yobe, and Adamawa. Um, in fact, some put it as the size of Belgium, uh, where it controlled with Goza as its capital. Fast forward 2021, we now have these local governments that formerly were under Boko Haram control, and now most of them are back, even though a few of them are still uh, under heavy attacks. Uh, so we can see that there is progress being made uh, over time between 2015 and 2021. Again, looking at road you know, attacks and things like that. In, in fact, two years back, uh, there was only one functional road. Uh, that is the Maiduguri Damatu Road. But now, people have, can access Maiduguri, Goza, in fact, move up to Adamawa at some point with, with escort. And people can move from Maiduguri to Dikwa, Meduguri uh, to Monguno, uh, to Gubio, uh, and even uh, with uh, military escort to Baga. I think this is something that we also need to point out. Now, coming to look at the issue of uh, the effects uh, it has produced, uh, no doubt a lot of things have changed. Let me begin with the constituency that I know of education. A lot of schools have been destroyed. Children are out of school for uh, years and years. And uh, as I speak to you now, most of the schools operate as learning centers in Maiduguri, uh, the state capital. And uh, in northern Adamawa, the schools have also been affected, as well as some parts of Yobe State. So uh, in terms of education, these attacks have really massively affected education uh, in terms of enrollment and, of course, its quality. Now, perhaps the greatest impact it has made is on the humanitarian situation. People are finding it very difficult to go to farm, and therefore they depend on food aid. And this is a region that has been affected by this resurgency from 2014, uh, at least looking at the peak, uh, 2014, to date, uh, many people uh, who are predominantly farmers have not been able to go to farm, and therefore it has created huge humanitarian consequences on the region. This has also uh, multiplied effects on poverty and other indices of development. Health condition, people are heavily traumatized. Uh, in fact, now 
we have at the University of Medjugorje Teaching Hospital a whole a trauma center that has been established, you know, to take care of trauma victims and things like that. Because a lot of people have lost their loved ones to this insurgency. A lot of women have been abducted. A lot of women, you know, have been raped. So it's it's a massive, you know, humanitarian situation that we are faced with. And coming from this uh, angle of someone who is right now resident in the region, we can only hope and pray for the best, but we hope that the worst has, has passed. So this is the current situation now, but uh, like I said earlier, things are gradually changing. Groups of farmers have gone back to the, the farmlands, although it's not yet certain whether the produce at the end of the season will go back to their homes. We are not quite sure of that. We live to see what happens, but the interesting thing is that a lot of farmers have been able to go back to farm this year, some around the northern parts of the state and central parts of the state. So we live to see what happens in the next one month or two months when the, the growing season comes to a complete end. Thanks so much. Uh, Vanson, would you like to come in there? The, the, Dr. Munguno is certainly right. The impact has been devastating on the population and a, a, a big aspect has been the massive displacement and massive encampment of, uh, of literally millions of people. And in 2016, there was a famine, I mean, quasi a famine. Of recent, though, as we mentioned earlier, ISWAP has, has a different policy towards civilians. And so they are, they are trying to reach out to civilians and encourage them to come back. And this is happening all the while as the Borno state authorities are also encouraging people to get out of the camps and, and back into the communities. So there's a sort of um, a struggle for influence over a population there. And that's, uh, that's an interesting aspect that we are going to see more and more, I think. Yeah, thank you. Asagi. Thank you. And I think it's also, if we talk about things from the community perspective and the challenges that the community sort of face and perceive even today, like, I think the one really extraordinary thing is in the fight against the insurgency happened the rise of vigilantism in the northeast of Nigeria, which in itself is, you know, community groups, youth groups coming together trying to uh, take the roles of formal security outfits, putting on soldier hats and like fighting for their own cause by themselves. And perhaps it would be argumentative to say whether or not they play a huge role in pushing back the Boko Haram insurgency in 2015 when the communities were prosperous and sort of not ending the conflict, but also de-escalating it in a lot of ways. So it has been quite interesting, you know, as peacemakers and peace builders to see what roles they play in the community today. Have they become a bridge between community and the military? Are they supportive? Of course, that also raises a lot of challenges because they have all the power and they're armed groups without any sort of legislation backing them or any formal round sets of rules for them to be playing the roles that they are. But we have seen that they for the benefit or otherwise, they have come across to play a huge role and are an independent body with a lot of control and power and influence over the community members today. So I feel that's another thing that the communities are quite happy with, but also this could very easily translate into a big challenge if not dealt with carefully and reconciled with 
within the communities or within formal security outfits if this insurgency were to end what would be their role so it's something that needs more attention on for sure thank you very much yeah that's a really interesting point and i think we should come back to it later when we're talking about the actual peace building processes themselves um, and it does seem that one of the complexities of this situation is the proliferation of actors that have ability to pursue violent means of <laughs> guaranteeing security for different groups in the population and the role of women women have come across to play such an important role you know both as community conflict mediators uh, trying to reconcile with you know there are so many strong women leadership groups women are playing a part in the security uh, sort of for informal security or community based security outfits but also their influence in terms of with market women with women's associations trying to prosper messages of peacemaking and peace building the amount of resilience that women have able to build and learn over these number of years of the ongoing crisis i feel like they are they play such a strong role both in terms of community reconciliations but also in terms of they've started to play much more leadership roles within policy as well as advocacy and messaging like the strongest messages have come through women networks and that's something that has changed over the time in the last 10 years especially and especially in the last 2 or 3 years we've seen a massive transformation that the role that women have played in the fight against the insurgency Thank you. Professor Mongano, I wonder if you could give us uh, your perspective on the role of the Nigerian government and the Nigerian military in all of this. Obviously we've been speaking the the way Vansal set it up at the beginning there's a lot of the conflict has been between these non-state armed groups but also of course they've been fighting the state. So what do you think this has revealed about the capacity of the Nigerian government to kind of guarantee security for its people? Okay, thank you Benjamin. Uh, before I go into that, uh, very quickly, I would want to say that uh, what Vincent talked about Iswap uh, trying to uh, woo, you know, ordinary community members to give them some space for farming and other livelihood activities and things like that. I see and many people also around here see this as a strategy uh, to gain more and more control of territory uh, in other words competing with government to provide certain services is what called i mean uh, we have come to learn that they, they they get taxes raise revenues i know to, to to give protection to some people because people are tired of living in the camps so they better go and 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 take up the pieces of their lives under iswap control and things like that but i think this is the most dangerous strategy if we allow this to continue and uh, it's, it's it's unfortunate they still control certain you know populations and provide some of these uh, services to people and this is where the nigerian government must do all it can to to stop uh, you know this strategy of of uh, gaining more and more uh, control of territory by iswap now coming to uh, the conflict between the nigerian state and boko haram or jazz and iswap uh, you are right uh, the it's not only the infighting between the two groups but as well the most important fight of course is between the nigerian state and these two insurgent groups it has been on and on uh, since 
2001-2002 when Boko Haram emerged in Kanama village of Yobe State. But over time, we've come to uh, realize that uh, the Nigerian military, uh, number one, is overstretched. It is present in nearly all the states of, of the Federation uh, and responding to conflicts here and there. Number two, uh, insurgency uh, in the way it is unfolding in the Northeast, uh, it appears the Nigerian military is not quite trained to fight this. And I think this is uh, the most important challenge the military is facing. We've come to see how well-trained uh, combat, uh, you know, ready soldiers have been killed by what many people see as ragtag army, people who essentially have not been to school, but were able to, you know, use uh, device means of fighting a national army like the Nigerian military. And I think this is the most important challenge. But overall, uh, despite the losses, heavy losses, the Nigerian military has incurred, uh, like I said earlier, there is now light at the end, at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the fight is gradually, is gradually being won, uh, although at great cost. So there still needs to be done quite a number of things. Uh, it's not just important for you to gain territorial ground. You must have to control it effectively. Put up governance structures uh, in the local communities. Make sure that life goes back uh, like uh, it was before. Uh, right now, in many of the areas, we are yet to see, you know, the, the comeback to life of, of the local population in terms of uh, governance. We'll want to see the traditional rulers, you know, the local police, the prison services, the immigrations, the customs in the LGAs working so that we know that at least we are not only present militarily, but other aspects of governance are also uh, effectively functioning. And I think that is the only thing that will convince the ordinary person to live in his or her community. So uh, the, the, the fight is gradually being won, but at great cost. But we still have lots and lots of ground to cover in terms of efficacy of, of, of local administration. Absolutely. Thanks very much. I'd like to move on now to talk about the peace processes that have been ongoing in, in recent years. And, and Sagi, maybe you could give us a bit of an overview of this. Obviously, as we've been discussing, the conflict is ongoing but there have been a number of different peace-building approaches that have been taken in the region. Could you maybe tell us about those? Like we've emphasized so many times through our conversation today that violent conflict is extremely complex and fast-changing. And if we look at peacemaking, peace-building solutions in an ongoing humanitarian crisis, it is extremely difficult. It's not easy to come up with programming that caters to conflict context, but also looks at collaboration, looks at how we can how we can adapt to real-time live reporting to, and coming up with solutions that are peace building, towards peace building for the communities by making sure that the communities are also included with each of the programs. So what we try to do with the program like Smart Peace, it's, it's not uh, absolutely brand new for an innovative peace building program to have an adaptive and collaborative sort of response. But um, some of the things that we've been able to do is that there are so many actors 
in a conflict context like Nigeria, there are so many different ways of approaches. What we've been able to sort of do, and I feel like um, done well to a certain degree, is to bring together research, behavior analysis, implementation, and peace building programming in such a way where we're able to, normally these pieces work quite independently. How do we benefit of real-time analysis and quickly design program implementation activities, dialogue strategies that can reflect on real-time analysis? So some of the things we've been able to do as a peacemaking sort of organization is that to cater to problems at hand, as well as looking at solutions in real time. And it's very, very difficult to adapt to conflict context. For example, when we look at, when I mentioned vigilantism, or for example, uh, looking at ex-combatants and the returnees and reintegration and reconciliation of ex-combatants, it is extremely important to reintegrate and reconcile. And these effective government-led operations are highly complex, but at the same time, in a context like Nigeria, there are so many different actors and it is so easy for the state government to shift the blame to the central, the central government to shift the blame to community mechanisms and the communities to say that the government's not doing enough for them, but focusing more on um, ex-combatants' livelihood. They're more centric and focused on what people who've done harm to us are doing than what we deserve to be treated as. So we, we through like peacemaking processes and what's happening in the current environment in the Northeast of Nigeria is trying to strike the right balance in between uh, keeping programs more strategic, more inclusive, more collaborative and more focused. And that's an example that I feel like Smart Peace has been able to do. We had colleagues at the International Crisis Group do real-time analysis of the Situation on Ground, the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and Conciliation Organizations like Conciliation Resources, trying to implement these into dialogue strategies and making and strengthening one arm of the conflict, as well as looking at how we can bring behavioral insights into peacemaking. How do we make small shifts in discussions that will help communities and especially the most affected communities, women, and children be more receptive of what the government-led efforts are trying to do. And as peace-building organizations or peacemakers doing program, we often forget why we do what we do and get caught up in a lot of delivering program to objectives, delivering it through a certain budget at a certain time frame. But it's very important to remember that the conflict is ongoing and it needs to have a humane element and somehow some of the things we've been we've tried to do is connect with the humane element of it and try to cater to problems at hand while keeping the overall objective of working towards conflict resolution and peacemaking, not forgetting what we're here to try and achieve, but at the same time doing it in a more real fashion, I would say, in some ways. Professor Mongunu, you've also been involved in Smart Pieces activities. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about about your experiences um, of these peace-building processes? Uh, it's important to realize, like Sadie said, quite a number of actors are engaged in peace-building in the Northeast. But under Smart Peace, uh, we have come to realize that quite a number of things have been achieved, talking to groups, religious leaders, talking to vigilante groups, 
talking to women, talking to youth groups who are in the forefront of uh, the insurgency uh, at the beginning and up till now. It gladdens our hearts to realize that uh, in trying to talk to them and, of course, uh, using this very important adaptive process of peace building uh, under Smart Peace, we have come to use religion as one of the most important you know, tools so that because the, the, the insurgency in itself began as a religious issue, as a religious problem, so we came to realize that it will be very effective if we use religion to gain uh, acceptance from people. And so what we did on the Smart Peace was to bring together some religious stuff across peace building. In other words, looking at peace building from a religious perspective. And we talked to groups, to IDPs and all you know, manner of people. And it was fantastic the results we achieved. It gladdens my heart, for instance, to remember that in one of the sessions we attended, a Christian lady stood up to say, she has forgiven the person who has killed her son, the Boko Haram, a young man who killed her son. And I think this is something to report. This is something to be proud of. If talking to groups that looking at the fracture, you know, religious landscape of Nigeria, if a Christian will openly forgive uh, the insurgent, I think a lot of effort has gone into uh, this peace building process. Again, we are able to tame these vigilante groups. Uh, the vigilante, when they came on board, they are unruly, they are unorganized. And so one of the things we did was to keep talking to them so that uh, they can see themselves, number one, as parts and parcel of the communities they come from, and two, helping to build peace, not to destroy peace. And so uh, we were able to establish platforms in two communities, in, in Meduguri, in MMC and Jere, where these uh, platforms consisting of both the local vigilante and the community members, the community members, of course, cutting across religious, uh, traditional, youth group, women's group, put them together to help them build trust among themselves and help forge ahead to build peace so that in case of you know, an adversary, they can together come to defuse tensions. In case of any problems in the community, they can come together to uh, help solve and resolve these conflicts. And I'm happy to say that a number of them have been able to reconcile within the community members. And I think this is something to be proud of. So taming vigilante of uh, the vigilantes uh, in, in, in Northeast is a huge task because of what they were initially set out to do. Of course, you know that it was a spontaneous group that came to emerge as a vigilante. Some of them were hunters, some of them became civilian JTF, and of course, the vigilante group of Nigeria. So all of these three groups uh, of vigilantes, um, HD uh, through Smart Peace was able to come closer to them, sit down, organize them, and build trust, not only within vigilantes themselves, but between vigilantes and community members so that they can together help to live in peace, help to, uh, to, to forge ahead as people who are affected by conflict, as people who need to see a peace you know, in the coming years. So it's important to realize that we have been able to do this uh, important uh, 
uh, trust building and, and peacemaking between and within vigilante groups in the course of our work. And, uh, talking about the um, IDPs, uh, we have also worked uh, with IDPs in the virtually all the camps that are in Meduguri. And um, talking to them, talking to the disabled community, we were able to realize that the more you talk, the more people are likely you know, to, to forgive, the more people are likely to, even if they cannot forget, but at least to let go certain things that Boko Haram was able to do to the community. And I also remember one of the IDPs telling us that she has forgiven the person who killed her husband because she knows him, she has seen him, and even if today they meet anywhere, she has no objections if he cannot go back into his former state. And I think this brings me to an important question, I mean, important issue. A lot of people here in Meduguri and in, 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 in Bonose generally are not quite opposed to the issue of reintegration and reconciliation. What they want to be assured of is the fact that are we sure that these people have really repented? This is what uh, many people cannot answer, a question that many people cannot answer. And so if they are sure that these people have uh, really repented, then I think it's time to open another page in, in, in our lives. So this is what many people talk about, their concerns and how they see things, not necessarily uh, the issue of coming to, together to say we've repented, uh, let's reconcile, but nobody can answer the question of whether there is this uh, true repentance that they cannot go back to their former states. I completely agree both with what um, Professor Monguno has said and just when we are talking about peacemaking and the number of actors in the humanitarian peacebuilding segment, I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about how this needs to work both in a bottom-up fashion, but also in a top-down arrangement, because policymakers, policy influencers, advocacy units, policy think tanks, if taken community perspectives into their drafting, making policies that address to topics like reconciliation and reintegration of ex-combatants, inclusive strategies for vigilantes, but also addressing the conflict and deriving conflict resolution strategies, I think consultative and multi-track solutions from a bottom-up and top-down strategy would be an effective way to go about, especially in a context like Northeast Nigeria. So I think we're coming towards the end of our conversation, actually, but I'd, I'd like to leave this just by sort of looking towards the future a bit. And I wonder, Vance, on whether maybe your best place to speak to this and then others can come in. But I, I wonder, you know, from what we've learned during the Smart Peace Project and the trajectory of the peace processes more broadly. What do you think the kind of key lessons are for policymakers, whether in Nigeria or beyond, about this adaptive peace building approach? I think one of the conclusions is that opening ways out, showing people that you know it's possible to get out of an, of an insurgency, whether you're an active member or whether you're just a civilian, you know, stuck in the middle and, and having to survive in, in, in the areas controlled by the insurgents, that's very important to do that early on, you know, to get out of the narrative of uh, those are just, you know, mindless drug addicts, crazy people that we need to kill, you know, because you're never going to kill. 
everyone. And there are lots of people who have second thoughts. There are lots of people who have been forced to join. There are lots of people who join just, just to defend their family and, and you know, community properties. And so opening a way out uh, fairly early on, uh, I think, is really a game changer um, because it creates a room for people to change and, and a room for people to change both on the side of, of the insurgency and on the side of the of the communities uh, living in, in government controlled areas. And, and you know, showing a degree of willingness, a degree of nuance in uh, accounts of, of who's doing what to whom is, is extremely important. So the, in a way, uh, I think you know, the, the narratives uh, matter a lot because they frame the sort of ideas that people try to make it through this extreme violence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, Sanji, do you have anything to add to that? Just in terms of like recommendations, both like it is a very heavily dominated environment for aid, as well as peacemaking and peace building sort of interventions. I think a collaborative approach would be would be much much more helpful in a context, not just in terms of research partners and implementing partners, but also in terms of policymakers and practitioners. I think that if solutions for Nigeria, as well as recommendations made to the Nigerian government came from collected bodies, as well as unified responses towards what would work, what wouldn't work, uh, and using similar examples to drive solutions, but also making sure, like I said, to have a very bottom-up and a top-bottom approach at the same time. The analysis must and should go from the community including the local governments, inclusive of the state governments, inclusive of peak bodies, included, inclusive of organizations that can and have the, the strength and capacity to uh, recommend solutions. But at the same time, both from the government level, like we've worked so closely even with Chatham House and done policy influencing conversations that help us put out local recommendations and induce them into recommendations coming from a more top-down approach by the government, for the government, as well as looking at the security and military recommendations. So I feel like what would work in a context like Nigeria is to have inclusive steering committee discussions while forming or redrafting any policy and make it as inclusive as possible. Thank you very much. Yeah, and, and last word then to Professor Monguno, maybe you could uh, just share your key takeaways and the relevance you think policymakers can take from Smart Peace. Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, for me, I really would want to see improvement in governance of both humanitarian aid as well as uh, the Nigerian state. This is very key. As it is, a lot of things are happening. Uh, way back in 2016, uh, when the World Bank assessed the damages to infrastructure in the Northeast, about 9.2 billion U US dollars were lost. A lot of things have happened since then, uh, meaning there is an increase in that because the damage continues and continues up to this moment. But again, there is massive inflow of funds and effort in the Northeast. And so unless we coordinate our intervention, both at the uh, humanitarian space and of course with government, we are not likely to uh, turn things around uh, very soon. And so I would uh, really would like to see more coordination in terms of humanitarian intervention, perhaps an equal amount or even greater amounts of money 
may have been sunk in the northeast uh, to respond to the conflict. We don't know. But uh, a lot of things are going, you know, in silos. And, 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 and so we don't know exactly how things work in some areas. And that's why sometimes even the government of Bono State and some other states become confused and say, look, uh, we don't know what you are doing. Can you open up what you are doing and things like that? And so this suffers from lack of coordination. And this is what I also term as governance. Overall, the government must be seen you know, to respond to the uh, conflict in a very, very effective way. We have seen a lot of improvement in the government of Bono State, but we would also like other state governments in the Northeast and, of course, development partners to coordinate among themselves to make sure that every dollar spent on the conflict or responding to the conflict in Bono State or, or in the Northeast counts. And therefore, this is uh, important in responding to the conflict. One of the, before we forget, one of the most important um, precursors of this conflict, of course, is poor governance from the Nigerian state. And so if we must respond to it, then we must make sure that we respond to it in a way and manner in which our policy intervention must be accountable. We must uh, make sure that every COBO is result-oriented. Every uh, dollar spent is, is result-oriented to make sure that people that are supposed to benefit from it benefit from it. I think these are my quick, quick thoughts on, 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 on policy. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think that's a really, really great place to end with all, all three of your reflections there. So uh, thank you for joining me for this conversation. And um, I look forward to reading more of your work on, on the situation in Nigeria. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that's it for this episode of Smart Peace. Thank you very much for listening all the way through to the end. If you liked what you've heard, I would really appreciate it if you could tell your friends, tell your family, tell your colleagues if you think they would be interested in this work. And if you could also like and subscribe to the Undercurrents podcast feed wherever you're listening to this, that would be massively appreciated. If you want to find out more about Smart Peace, the first thing I'd say is listen to the other two episodes in this series, which will be available wherever you're listening to this. You should also check out the websites of the respective organisations involved. The Smart Peace project itself has now come to an end, but I hope that this series in particular, along with other written outputs, really give you a sense of the lessons that we can learn from this. And the organisations involved are all, of course, continuing to engage in the processes that they were part of in the countries that we've covered this week. In particular, if you want to find out more about Chatham House's work in this area, then I would suggest following the Chatham House International Security Programme on Twitter at Chatham House ISR and also checking out our website www.chathamhouse.org. If you're new to this podcast through this mini-series, then welcome. We have uh, 130-odd other episodes that you can check out. would heartily recommend some of our recent ones from this year in particular. And I'm very, very delighted that you've, that you've found us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes for you. And in the meantime, thank you very much for joining me. Mm-hmm.